Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man was originally became the, the united states of america it was united with the small u states of america it was the states that had the sovereignty well things are happening in these currently united states that uh, are shaking everybody up with the economy and uh, so much that's going on in the world there was an article on june 13th in the wall street journal called divided we stand says, what would California look like broken in three? Or a Republic of New England, with the federal government reaching for ever more power. Redrawing the map is enticing, says author Paul Starobin. Paul, thanks so much for being with us today on Portsmouth. Thanks for having me. Sure, and you are also author of uh, a book, which I haven't yet read, but it sounds real interesting. Oh, you will. Uh-huh. <laughs> After America, Narratives for the Next Global Age. Yep, that's it. Published by Viking. Well, you have said in this article, fascinating piece, that, Thank you. quote, the pluralistic heart of Amer- the American political tradition has been betrayed by the creeping centralization of power. Tell us more about that. Is that, that centralization in Washington yeah. or the financial concentration of wealth as well? Oh, absolutely. You know, I'd love to get the statistic. I was reading today that the federal government, this is certainly not surprising, is the largest employer in the country. And I was thinking back, when did that happen exactly? And I'm not sure I know the answer, but, you know, that's just part of it. Uh, You know, I mean, look, we've nationalized General Motors, right? You and I own a share of the General Motors company. How do you feel about that? Right. Uh, We've got a Federal Reserve, which is just awesome. I think, you know, they've now basically, under the new Obama plan, if it goes through, uh, will have uh, very sweeping oversight authority to to step in um, with, with virtually any firm in America that has a major kind of financial Role. So you know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system, Alexander Hamilton kind of being the guy here, and a very uh, un-Jeffersonian kind of a yes. system, Jefferson being the one who argued with Hamilton way back when about how we should be much smaller, small government, the states should have a lot more control over things, and that Washington is this kind of you know monster that should really be contained. Exactly. And i got to tell you, I've always been... Uh, personally, on the Jeffersonian side, in opposition to the Federalist Hamiltonian side, but it seems like Hamilton, even though Jefferson did become president of of the yeah. United States, capital S back then, right? But uh, you know, Hamilton was the the centralizer. The Federal yep. Reserve Bank is certainly in his image, but there was this debate going on. I mean, the United yes. States, the lines of the states—they're mostly straight lines. They were not. Uh, set in concrete. They were, no. uh, you know, they're not, were they intended to be eternal lines? I don't think God drew those I don't know. There lines. was no Maine, remember? It was, Ma- was it Massachusetts, right. uh, the, you know, the covering what's all now basically New England? Yep, yep. Well, Massachusetts and 
stripped up through uh, ports. Well, Rhode Island, I guess, kind of went went off its own direction at one point, but yeah. Well, and and, and most of Maine. There was a, the northern part, which was left All to right. the original. Well, I was born in Bangor in 1957. I want to get that on the record. Ah, well, I was born in Boston in 1950. I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts. Ah, well, you and Worcester. Abby Hoffman are from the same town. I'm a New Englander. Well, I it, like New England. We did we do things very locally very well yes. in New England. Education being one of them, one of my favorite issues. And I got to tell you, my interest in uh, secession and and perhaps a better system uh, for these currently United States yeah. was sparked the morning after November the November two thousand four election. Uh, my then ten uh-huh. uh, year old daughter. No, I guess she was eight at the time. She said. Uh, you can forget uh, these things. Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, she she woke up the next morning. She said, "Well, did did Carrie win?" And myself and her mother said, "Well, no, he didn't win. George Bush won." She thought for a minute and said, "Well, did he win New England?" And we said, "Well, yes, he did." And her next logical question was, "Can he be president of New England?" You know, these you see economically the the map of the United States regularly divided up into regions. You got Texas, you got the old Confederacy, you have right. California divided into probably three different places. You got the Well, up- yeah, some people say four, some say, you know, there was, did you remember that old, uh, I forget which year it was, but there was the, uh, the, the sort of little statelet called Jefferson, which bit off a chunk of uh, southern Oregon and a chunk of northern California that the separatists, I think it was 1941, set up at that's one point. Right, that's I mean, right. There's, there's actually a lot of history here. Well, yeah, that's and I, I wanted to ask, and there, above Jefferson uh, would be perhaps Cascadia, which is Washington and good bit of British Columbia. Yeah, there you go. Because, well, you know, some may talk about secession is sedition. It may be treason, but really how traditional is secession? Yeah. Well, I would make one distinction, just to be clear, and you know, and maybe this is a disagreement between us, but I would call myself basically a devolutionist. Devolution, uh, and I explain okay. that, as opposed to an outright, you know, secessionist. I mean, devolution. Uh, you know, George Kennan, you know, one of the, the right. diplomat, historian, one of the, uh, you know, really wise men of the American, you know, century back when. I mean, he talked about maybe we should break up America and have, you know, sort of ten decentralized. You know, regions with with taking a lot of the powers that are now in Washington, and you know, something like that I find is interesting. Uh, you know, secession. I mean, you know, I mean, we could we could certainly talk about that. I I don't I I have to be you know how exactly is it gonna is it gonna go? I mean, the the devil can That's often be in the the details on Oof. on issues like that. And you know, I'm not trying to you know stir up a riot here or anything like that. I I, I think this this issue should be on the table. For discussion, you know, it's in discussion in Europe. I mean, look, Scotland oh, sure. wants its autonomy from the British Isles, uh, from London. You know, I mean, so let's talk about it here. This, this shouldn't be just something for sort of fringe groups and so forth. I think it should be a mainstream political discussion. You know, is America too big? You know, is it too big what to do govern? You think, citizen? Ah, so maybe it'd be nice if there could be uh, the beginning of a discussion. I think maybe yeah. you're right that Get devolution the going. Devolution may be a better term. It's less threatening. Yeah, devolution, I know that, yeah. Sometimes it sounds a little bit like, you know, the opposite of evolution, so we're like going back to the knuckle-dragging <laughs> you know, state of mankind. But, you know, it's just, a, I don't know what the right term is. Decentral, you know, it sounds kind of jargony when you talk about decentralization. But basically we're talking about going from big to small. Yeah. Or and, smaller. 
and, well, from and, giant to more you know manageable size. Well, that's part of the thing. We have 310 million people right now in this country. Absolutely. And that uh, people often think it's just too big to govern. Does one? Yeah. S- and how many congressmen? I can't remember. When's the last time we changed the uh, numbers of members of Congress? But if we keep growing, that means that you know each member of Congress will be representing more and more and more people. That well, that's right because it's it, it's now I think 600,000 per. Per member of Congress, and there's four hundred. Oh, it is, yeah. Four hundred thirty-five members of Congress, and uh, uh, of the House. Uh, of the House, yes, and a hundred in the Senate. And one of my favorite lines uh, has been uh, from Gore Vidal in his 1991 book called Patriotism. I think he got this right. He said uh, about America as a whole, "quote There is no agreed upon country to cherish; only <laughs> warring tribes." and overall, a national security state to keep the lid on $300 billion a year back then. Uh, for law and order, there is one nation for a black, one nation for a boat person, a third for Cherokee, and milk and honey for that one-fifth of the population with money. Yeah, well, that's Gore Vidal. He's, he's great words. But I actually oh, yeah. would, I would agree, and, 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 and well, I would not agree with sort of part one of that. I, I don't think it's that we're just like warring tribes. I think that goes way too far. It is I don't, exaggeration. By, by the way, look at this in terms of, you know, any kind of ethnic or tribal terms. Right. To me, this is not a balkanization kind of a thing at all. So, you know, if others want to talk about that, they can go ahead, but that, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, how could uh, it not be? The national about? security part of it, no, I think that is interesting. I mean, and, and certainly, you know, if we go back to Kennan, you know, one of his phrases was he was concerned about what he called the hubris of inordinate size, uh-huh. right? The hubris, the, you know, the arrogance. And, you know, the war in Iraq for example, uh, would we have done it, you know, had we been as big as we are? I mean, you know, did we do it in some sense because we, we could? And, you know, to what extent does our size, for example, affect our foreign policy? I mean, that I think is an interesting and debatable question, but I don't really want to go into the tribal thing yeah. as far as, you know, where I'm coming from. I, I, I tend to agree. I don't think we're as much tribal. It's just that th- there are different cultures, it seems. Yeah. Well, I, regional culture's fine. I, I mean, I'm happily identified as a New Englander. I'm a member of the Red Sox nation. Okay, Absolutely. I'm proud to be. Yeah. Well, I grew up in New England, of course. I, some of my earliest memories are from 1967. Well, back in the, uh, the South, there was something that they didn't like either, probably a little bit more than we didn't like the Yankees, <laughs> the evil Yankees. Yeah. But well, thankfully, we're not wrestling with slavery now, and that you know that's that's kind of poisoned this issue of secession. It has. It has. Because uh, you know it was of course the great secession of the Confederate states. Uh, I guess first seven, then eleven, and then thirteen, if you count Missouri and Kentucky, as some people do, was over this issue of slavery. Well, you know, we don't have uh, a slave system anymore. Uh, and maybe there are some ex-Confederates out there. I'm sure there are oh, yeah. who get plugged into this issue uh, on secession. But I don't think they. You know, it's certainly not where people are coming from in places like Vermont and California. And I don't think that's what's animating Texas or Alaska either, uh, which are also kind of uh, voluble on this issue. So, are you suggesting that instead of uh, separatism, that they're talking about some sort of perhaps? I mean, Scotland, I believe, in their uh, 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 hopes, a lot of them would be an autonomous state within the United Kingdom. Yeah, that, that's one formula. I think there are, you know, one of the problems here is that you, you tend to get a lot of different formulas. Yeah. But um, that would be one thing. Yeah, Sean Connery has been 
in the, out in favor of that, which is interesting, giving it some profile. Uh, you know, a lot. There's certain another issue here. Is, it's kind of less emotional, but more practical. Is just the economic logic of things, because if you look, you know, there are these economic map makers, uh, cartographers, if you will, who draw lines and circles around the country that basically capture. Uh, what they call mega regions, you know, where centers or nodes of economic activity, uh, and that's a possible way to think about borders for something like this. And you know, uh, in California, for example, you have a distinct economy that's built around sort of technology and Silicon Valley in the northern uh, part, but you have a different kind of an economy in the in the south, and you have a lot of connections to Mexico yes. if you get as far down as San Diego. So, you know, you can draw things in that kind of a fashion. It may be a less charged way of trying to draw things than, you know, eth- you know ethnicity or culture, for example. Well, I, I wonder how they could be. I mean, I, I think one of the reasons that uh, states, I'm guessing here, I don't really know how the state lines did get drawn and did get accepted and what, what the uh, parameters were of the borders, but it seemed to be sort of uh, shared values and shared economic interests and, and the economy right now, let's face it, uh, well, as, as you said, America's broke, ill-governed, and way too big nation-like state might be saved, truly saved, saved not by an emergency federal bailout, but by a merciful carve-up into a trio or perhaps a few other republics uh, I'm adding here that would yeah, be I got not... A lot of, I was just in California. I, got a, I kind, of, kind of got a lot of questions about that, as you might imagine, as part of my, you know, the After America book, uh, book tour. Uh, about uh, California being broken well, up? Oh, sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're pretty desperate out well, there. Well, that's the point. I mean, does this a huge monolithic uh, super state uh, with a tremendous budget and car- you know making unbelievable uh, deficit spending right now. How long can it keep going like that? Uh, you know, there's, I don't know. There's well, the, I think the feds are not actually. I mean, they they they're saying they're not going to bail them out. There may be a game of chicken going on now. <laughs> We've uh, seen that before. Yes, we have seen that before, haven't we? Uh, but but you know, I don't think they're betting on it. So. What you, what what's happening in California to a certain degree is that the different parts are are fending for themselves. Right. Uh, for example, uh, I know in the Oakland area, one of the really wealthy educational districts is basically applying you know new fees so they can raise money for their schools because they know that their money is not going to be there the you know state. from the state funding formula. But you know that's tough because that tends to separate out the rich and the poor. Yes. So you, you wouldn't. I don't think we would want to do this. I certainly want to. Wouldn't want to do this by by just kind of drawing circles around wealthy areas and then circles around kind of poor areas and separating out on that basis. That that I don't like at all. Well, when I think it, urban cores or metropolitan cores make more sense. You could think of this in terms of like sport franchises. You know, sure. look at the sport franchises and look at like who gets the Dodgers in Los Angeles, and maybe draw a circle around that area and see what it looks like. Yeah, they left Brooklyn, didn't they? Uh, <laughs> shame that was. <laughs> or Red Sox Nation. And Red Sox Nation of, seems uh, to you fit know, the New England area. You know, who who gets uh, the New England? Uh, uh, sports network or who's ra- you know what AM radio stations are carrying the Red Sox? I guess it gets you a, per- a certain way of the distance down into Connecticut, but then you start getting into Yankee Land. Oh, I know. Well, you know there there is there are these sort of natural boundaries, and I think Red Sox Nation really might be one because, as you say, Connecticut, you know that that's kind of Yankee territory. Connecticut, so, well, it gets bored. It's bored. I think it, I regard it as borderland territory. Borderland. 
Well, it is a problem. I mean, in all seriousness, that there seems to be a, a lot of sort of natural uh, connection between what's talked about. There's the term Novacadia that has come out of yes. uh, uh, people yes. in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, which would be northern New England, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. You know, that's that's different from Massachusetts. I think these yes. that grouping would have would be more logically uh, connected. And it in- might be if it, yeah, if there were good like uh, connect, you know, part of this is also infrastructure too. You know, you oh, want to yes. make sure there are good roads and things. You know, connecting the people. So if you're gonna if you're talking about you know truck transport stuff like that, you know, it it gets you know that that takes things to a different level as well. Airports, I mean, are very important. You need to each of these regions has to have at least one major airport as a hub. Yeah. Edu- uh, transportation is a huge, huge part of it. And if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here on Portside, we're talking with author Paul Starabin, author of uh, After America, Narratives for the Next Global Age, and an article uh, on uh, June 13th, Divided We Stand, in the Wall Street Journal. And, uh, you know, one of the problems in northern New England is, as they say in northern Maine, you can't get there from here. You know, that the top of Vermont, top of New Hampshire, top of Maine would like to be connected, but because of the power structure that currently is and where the uh, population centers are, tends to be, you know, the southern New Hampshire, southern Vermont, uh, and southern Maine is where the spending for highways comes in, and, you know, there may be other ways to do it. So uh, that's maybe part of uh, being grouped with the rest of New England and the you know having been so dependent on uh, Mother Washington, you know that yeah. the decisions yeah. for spending come out of Washington, and uh, you know the the economic solutions may be drawing part of it. And we're all so focused on the economy now. You know you can try to patch it up and just redo it and bail out the various different banks with our tax dollars. But I wonder how uh, sustainable, a very popular word these days is, it really is. And if you look at something like uh, economic solutions, like I guess there's been something in San Diego called Cali Baja, a bi-nation. <laughs> yes, that's right. A bi-nation. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, do you want me to talk a little bit yeah, about yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, please I mean, it's, do. It's, um, I mean, it's not outright. It certainly is, it shouldn't be confused with a secession movement. I think it's much more in line with this kind of devolution trend. But basically uh, what's happened is you have a group of business leaders and political leaders in, let's say, three areas, you know, greater San Diego, San Diego County, Imperial County, which is next door, uh, but also, you know, in America, Southern California, and then Northern Baja, Mexico. So, you know, San Diego is a lot of high tech, a lot of research, that kind of thing. Imperial County has a lot of um, land, and and uh, so has uh, Northern Baja with a lot of the manufacturing and stuff, and also some electricity. So they can, for example, supply peak electricity uh, to uh, San Diego and during you know San Diego's peak time. So basically, these leaders have gotten together and they've decided to market this mini region or this you know mega region, we might say, as an economic region, you know, internationally, globally, uh, and they're calling it Cali uh, Baja, I believe, and yeah. it's, it's um, you know, it's an interesting concept, and I talked to the woman who's the project director there, and she's, you know, she turns out she's an historian and somebody who worked on the uh, Ronald Reagan National Security Council, Christina Lund, and what Christina tells me is that, you know, she thinks uh, it's not just nation-states competing with each other anymore, it's, it's regions competing Absolutely. with each other, and we see that all around the world, and she says, look, we, we here in San Diego feel as, as far from you know, Sacramento, you know, up to the north, the capital of California, as we feel from Washington. And we have a creative idea here. We'd like to, uh, 
get it underway. Now, you know, interesting, and maybe ironically, uh, they actually got a little bit of C grant money from the Economic Development Administration in, in Washington for this, but, but really, it's a local initiative. These are people in San Diego who are saying, hey, you know, we need to make our own connections uh, in the world. And I, I think it's very imaginative. You know, but it's going to be bilingual. That's part of the uh, sure. thing as well. They want kids on both sides of the border to be speaking uh, English and Spanish. And I, I think that's, personally, I think that's a good idea. I know some people don't like this notion, but, um, you know, I think depending on what part of the country you're in, uh, it's just a reality of things. And if they expect to, you know, uh, uh, prosper economically, uh, I think that's the best way to go. And uh, so, I, you know, I'm very intrigued by those kinds of uh, initiatives. Those are the, the sort of little seedlings and things that we should be watching here. Yeah, practicality, doing things for real. What a concept. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know. And look, getting the local business, I like that too. I mean, instead of, uh, you know, all the money, like things like education. I mean, you know, education is a, is a really local thing. And, uh, you know, when did we have the Department of Education so involved in things? We didn't even have a Department of Education, I think, until... Was it in the uh, the eighties? I mean, it just uh, you know uh, we managed somehow. America managed to survive you know for a very long time without a federal department of education. Uh, but it's just a symbol. It's not like I want to blame all our problems on the Department of Education. But this is what I'm talking about. You know, get the local businesses, the local leaders involved in terms of funding things like educational priorities. Self government. What a concept, you know. That's <laughs> I, I, I'm reminded when, uh, you know, in the 1770s, there was this uh, move. We had been, we, the colonies, had been a part of Mother England, a part of Great Britain. And yep. there was an economic divide. There was a big ocean, too. But, uh, you know, we wanted to have our own self-government. And people were very, very committed to that. We didn't like having decisions that affected our future being made by an unanswerable monarchy back then and parliament that that didn't relate to us we were very distant from that we wanted to have our own decision making so it sounds i mean and many could argue i think rather effectively that the so-called revolution wasn't really a revolution per se it was a war of independence it was a war of secession we seceded from england to have our own self-government for our own economic good and let's face it it does generally come down to dollars yeah, well, 11 years before we had our Constitution uh, uh, <clears throat> set in, in, in stone, we, we had a Declaration of Independence in 1776. Right. And um, I think a lot of the devolutionists or secessionists are look, kind of look at that as a kind of founding you know, charter document, and that the Constitution came later. Uh, so right. they're beginning to talk about yeah, King Obama here in Washington, <laughs> uh, which is interesting, I think, for progressives to think about as well. I mean... Uh, there are plenty of libertarians, let's say, who are more on the right, who are very comfortable with this idea of a very yeah. trimmed-down Washington. But a lot of the progressives, you know, a lot of them, of course, voted for Obama, but you know, do they really like this big government as well? I mean, I think it's sort of an interest. It'll be interesting to see where they, you know, where they come out. I mean, you know, Vermont has a pretty good oh, secession yeah. movement going, and Vermont is one of the most politically liberal states in, in the country, right? And oh, so absolutely. there, I think it was motivated more by, like, uh, you know, the adventure in Iraq, and, yes. you, know, the, you know, sort of the imperial... Uh, military uh, aspect of this. Yeah, and we, as I say, we want to have our own direction. And one of the things that, that you know, there's the, there's the tradition in the United States of something called populism. And right. it started in opposition to the big centralization of power against the railroads in the 1890s. And lately, we've seen these, these tea parties and groups that are, you know, Fox News organized and really clearly of the 
pretty hard right. And it's been curious to me how populism has been taken by the right when, as, as you mentioned, you know, what about the left? What about the aggressives? Here we have the concentration and centralization of power, which has been something that, that the left, well, maybe not, you know, the communist left, but, you know, that's rather irrelevant, I think. But they've, yes. they've uh, you know, the left has, has mistrusted the concentration and centralization of power. Look yes. at the... the, the, the media, the, too, for example. And the SDS, when it formed the Port Huron Statement back in 1961, was yep. about taking power back, yep. getting away from imperialist adventures yep. like Iraq. Yeah. No, I really think you're putting your finger on something, and I think uh, the left should really think about whether, for example... Uh, you know, nationalizing General Motors is such a great idea. I mean, I understand that people's heart goes out to the workers, you know, they oh, sure. care about the overpaid, you know, fat cat management, all those kind of people, but, you know, jobs and unions and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, think about it. Do you want the government, you know, as the majority owner of one of the country's largest, uh, you know, corporations? I mean, what does that get you? Uh, or do you want to go more local with your movements? You know, there's lots of interesting threads here. I mean, even the kind of the whole back to nature, the organic sure, food, definitely. local food, all that kind of stuff could could tie into a more, you know, a, a green, friendlier, you know, economy. I mean, a lot of the things that the left, you know, cares about. I, I uh, you know, I'm beginning to talk to people on both sides about this, and it's interesting. I think there's some very interesting left-right combinations Absolutely. on this issue of devolution. Yes, very much so. And uh, certainly Ronald Reagan said he favored devolution back when he was president. (laughs) And, you know, the left... He did. The idea... Look what he did with the military. You see, the interesting thing, you know, on on the left, you tend to think... they, They worry about the big military, the national security state. On the right... Uh, they they tend to like that state, but but then they worry about you know our level of taxes and so forth, which is of course a bit inconsistent since taxes help to pay for the military. But you know it's sort of two different you know nodes of anxiety about Washington. What do you mean? Uh, in the sense that the left is anxious, they don't like a Washington that's like too big of a military you know empire. But- whereas on the right. They, they they get very agitated about you know things like the Internal Revenue Service and the level of taxation. Well, and also there's the frankly big spending. I mean, uh, pres- big spending. President Obama has said, yeah, it's about spending. We're doing spending here, and the left, the traditional left, looks to its hero, largely Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who right. who, who recognized that Keynesian spending, that uh, deficit spending, could be a good thing for the nation. But, uh, you know, having it so centralized, and, and I can't help but think that, hey, where's the left? And what we're doing with our tax dollars now is propping up bigness just for yep. the sake of yep. bigness. Too big to govern. Yep. What about, you know, instead of bailing out the, the financial industry and bailing out, uh, uh, you know, the automakers, right. what about regional control? One of the things that the left is really focused on now is health care. What do we do about health care? We talk yes. about single payer. Well, it's yep. a huge country. The single would be 310 million people. What about the idea, I haven't heard anybody talk about this, single-payer pyregion, so you can have you know, a more right. uh, a homogeneous yep. uh, group perch- as the purchasing yep. agent for health care? I don't know. You know. I'm not a health care expert, but I like the way you're thinking in, this, in the sense that you know, it's getting people to talk about scale as an issue yes. in itself. And again, I go back to Kennan, who, you know, Kennan was prescient on so many different things. Yeah. And a very civilized guy. I mean, this is not a bomb thrower. 
And he believed that, you know, bigness was, was in itself a kind of evil. Uh, I mean, it's as simple as that. When things get to a certain kind of scale, they're just too big, and that's when you get a lot of bureaucracy, and you get a kind of political and an economic class that kind of sits on top of everyone else. Uh, yes. And that's where we are, yes. and that's what people need to think about. It's not an easy thing to think about in terms of how do we go from A to B, but let's you know at least diagnose the situation here. Yeah, and I think, again, it comes down to people uh, liking to have control over their own future. I know that's a tradition in New Hampshire. And there's, sure. There's oh, the, yeah, big one. Oh, yeah. And, and there's the old... Uh, uh, const- live free or die, right? That's the yeah, live free or die. I whatever. remember that license plate. Oh yeah, whatever that means. But you know, whatever in, that means. Well, live free or don't. I, you know, it could be anything. <laughs> but, well, it's that libertarian spirit. Well, but it, it, that's that's New Hampshire. But the the rest of the country has you know one size doesn't fit all. You look at uh, the concept uh, or the reality of NAFTA, for example, or of immigration. It might right. mean one thing in Ohio and Michigan, and something completely different in New Mexico, Arizona, and Texas. And yet we have one policy. We have the policymakers fighting with each other. But, you know, perhaps there could be a trade policy in the northern Midwest and a different trade policy that serves them better in, you know, Texas and the the Southwest. Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, one of the things that the centralized policy tends to get is, you know, who likes it? Well, those who have the sort of resources to play at a big big level, a big scale. And that tends to be very big uh, corporations and other sort of large, you know, well-endowed interests, yes. uh, the trade associations that represent them in Congress and so forth. And that all tends to favor the bigness. If if you cut it back a little bit, it would be interesting to see would you know would would other players be able to at least you know kind of punch at their weight? Because right now it's it's kind of difficult for them to do that. That's for sure. We don't have. I mean, the, uh, another thing Gore Vidal said in America, it's, I can't quote exactly, but uh, it, it, we have a unique system, the socialism for the rich and free enterprise <laughs> for everybody else. And that's right. what a lot of the people at the Tea Party things are, are angry about. And yeah, the Tea Party. Well, you know, I think Gore Vidal is onto something in that sense of, you know, this doctrine of, of too big to fail, which yeah. was applied in the... That, that um, you know, if our regulatory policy continues to support that, and I'm not quite sure whether the new Obama policy does or not, it's a little bit hard for me to figure that out, but if it does, then you're sort of guaranteed bigness because the market will continue investing companies that they think are too big to fail because if the federal government's going to bail them out, then uh. why not? So, you know, this, 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 also, this argument about bigness also engages, you know, the private sector as well. And, uh, you know, I, I'm actually a little bit reminded of the old Soviet Union, which just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't stay together forever. It was this huge right. centralized decision-making yep. power. The, the, just a few people had all the decision-making. Sure. And I'm reminded uh, there was a, a, a TV show back when the Soviet Union still existed, and it looked at the manufacture of all things in the Soviet Union of brassiers. There was a <laughs> state-manufactured brassiers. They were badly made. They yeah. didn't fit. Nobody wanted them, and yet they had all the power. There was no competition. Yeah. It was, you know, it, it's just kind of centralization. Well, right. I, you know, I lived in Moscow for four years. I was the bureau chief for uh, Business Week. It was 1999 to 2003, so it was after that. But you know, I got a lot of sense of that because there was, you know, there's still a lot of like what they call red factories. You know, uh-huh. sort of state-owned or or you know regionally owned factories. And yeah, most of them are actually incredibly uh, you know inefficient, but. <laughs> 
you know, what's interesting is, you know, at one point, uh, you know, John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist sure. back in the late 60s, wrote this book called The New Industrial State, where he, he said that America was basically going to go that path, not just socialism, but, but, but this kind of master-planned economy involving, like, the government and these, and these large corporations. And it turned out he was completely wrong about that, you know? In the 70s, the 80s, we had this entrepreneurial revolution. You know, what, California, I mean, some of that, you know, companies like Apple and others, they kind of came out of this, this notion where, you know, uh, you can invent something in your garage and go on to success. So, you know, we have that kind of dynamic, you know, part of us. We're, we're not the uh, former Soviet Union in, in that sense, but, but we might get to be more like that if we control everything out of Washington. If we're starting to pick winners and losers, you know, in the economy, that amounts to an industrial policy, really. And I think, you know, that's what Kennan was worried about as well, you know, because he predicted that the Soviet Union wasn't going to last. And, right. you know, in, in, in my book, in, in, you know, After America, one of the, reasons I wrote it was, I, I was sort of wondering, is America kind of the last of the big daddies, you know, in that sense? Is, are our politics, you know, kind of outmoded in an age when a lot of things can be done smaller? You know, there's, there's, a, there's the, the whole post-industrial part of this equation and the information revolution with communications, you know, small places like Singapore, you know, a city-state right. republic, often you know, seen as one of the most, you know, future-oriented places, you know, on the face of the planet. Uh, so, you know, this is, this is not just Jefferson's vision. It, it would be Jefferson's vision combined with what might be a very modern trend against bigness. We're talking on Portside with uh, Paul Starobin, author of After America. And uh, one of the, the quotes that you cite, I think, uh, is from John Naisbitt's book in 1995, Global mm -hmm. Paradox. The, I think this is interesting. It fits in exactly what you're saying. The bigger the world economy, and it's big, the bigger the world economy, the more powerful its smallest players. Right. Yeah, and what got that, the reason that quote got in the article that was in the Wall Street Journal article was because uh, that was that uh, the the leader of the Texas National Movement, Daniel Miller, was was quoting uh, uh, was citing Nesbitt for me as something that animated him. I found that very interesting. You know, I mean, on the one hand, he's quoting the Declaration of Independence. On the other hand, he's quoting. John Nisbet, and the two of them are kind of fitting together. That you know, maybe the industrial age was about the big, uh, you know, and the mass factory, and then the mass factory worker, and the big union. But maybe the post-industrial age is more about the small, and and America just has to kind of wake up to that. I mean, that's you know one of the things that people should be talking about. And one of the things that the left seems to be talking about, and it's always easy to beat up on Walmart. You know, they pay badly. They don't have health benefits. They right. are the big store. They used to be a lot of department stores. Now it's Walmart, period, which reminds me of the old Soviet system. And the argument in favor of Walmarts has been traditionally you buy in bulk, you get it cheaper, and you can right. deliver a cheaper product. And that's certainly a, a clear law of, of capitalism. But perhaps maybe instead of one Walmart for everybody, again, one size fits all, maybe different regions could have, I don't know, enable more competition somehow and be able to buy in bulk and pass the savings on to people. Yeah. 
Well, I think people have to think creatively about what they really want. And, you know, to some extent, Walmart is a creation of, of you know, I guess a consumer desire. And yeah. if people felt like they were going to get something cheaper there than at the local hardware store, they're going to go to Walmart. And, you know, I, I personally wouldn't, wouldn't you know, want to rule out people making those kind of preferences. But what sure. I would hope for is that, you know, the market, in some way, people's respond to that. You know, for example, with, you know, going back to food and stuff like that, I mean, that's something that can be very locally done. And, you know, convincing sure. people that local is better. So, you know, that can all be part of our, you know, market system, our, our, our political system. It, it's, a, you know, it's a question of appealing to people's uh, pr- preferences, let's say. So I mean, part of this is a kind of an educational process, I think, just to get, you know, I, I, I have the sense that many people in this country are just kind of battered, you know, they feel like Washington, I mean, it's so large, and it's such so much, you know, the system, the establishment, that they just feel kind of helpless about changing anything. And that's one thing that that this country was founded on, being not helpless, being not just, you know, subjects, but but actual citizens, whereby we can... we're not just watching a television program here, we're the actors in this movie. That's right, and and uh, it has been said that uh, democracy is not a spectator sport, but people feel completely powerless. They do feel yeah. powerless. They don't have decision-making, do. but you know, doing it more locally... Uh, yeah, it, it, and I'm sympathetic. Uh, people are tired. I mean, you know, oh, we, we yeah. all have our lives to live. We're just trying, you know, we're trying, waiting for our next paycheck. I mean, it's tough, you know. To, am I really going to attend that, that local you know, meeting on this or that? But, you know, that, that's, that, that certainly is how we began. Yeah, and uh, there, there is this, uh, as you've said, that uh, the history right now seems to be driving one nail after another into the coffin of the big. And we talked earlier about the uh, Cali Baja uh, uh, yeah. project, a new binational region. The project director there had some interesting words. Christina Lund, she says, large systems tend not to endure. They break apart, there's chaos, and at some point, new things form. And that yep. strikes me as like the law of physics, entropy. Yep. Entropy yep. is if something has a certain amount of energy and, and heat, but after a time, it just breaks down. Yeah. I mean, there are lots of interesting examples. I mean, look, for example, at uh, you know, the city of London and, and think of that as being part of the British Empire and not part of the British Empire. Well, the British Empire eventually got so big that it collapsed. But London has not collapsed. So London, you know, predates the, the you know the British Empire and postdates the British Empire. And as far as I know, is doing very well. Thank you very much. You know, making its connections to the wider world. So there's something about scale that um, I think does tend to favor the small, as long as you're doing it in a creative way. Not everything that's small, of course, is going right. to survive. I mean, you know, we're still living in a fairly Darwinian world. <laughs> but small yeah. things should be successful if they're intelligently done. It's very difficult to do really big things well for a very long period of time. That, hmm. That's the point. Hmm. Interesting. And I know that people from Novacadia, the uh, uh, northern New England uh, uh, maritime, I guess, region of, of Canada, they look to Denmark as a role model. I mean, they're not a superpower, but no. Denmark has a, a, you know, very, very strong economy. Yeah. Now, oh, yeah. Well, Norway, I believe, is the, you know, another Scandinavian country is the richest country in the world per capita. Yeah, I mean, this is an interesting thing. If you look at the most successful, you know, states in terms of things like, you know, it's efficiency and corruption, a lot of those kinds of things, they tend to be small, you know, relatively speaking. Uh-huh. Uh, it's the big countries, the really monster countries that, that you know, I'm generalizing, but that that tend to have more, you know, problems. And 
uh, one reason I, the debate resonate, resonates for me is that uh, you know I was over in India, for example, doing uh, the yeah. research on on my on my book, and I was having this you know this kind of after America discussion with with a guy over in Bangalore, and he told me, hey, you know what? In India, we talk about whether India is too big. You know, I got a billion people, and well, maybe yeah. you know we should have uh, you know we should be divided up into sort of ten large you know kind of mega mega regions built around our urban cores. And that New Delhi, the capital of India, should be giving you know broad writs of autonomy to these uh, mega regions. So you know it's a, it's a discussion over there. You know maybe China is, China is, is going to sure. turn out to be too big. Maybe you know I don't know. I'm not a China expert, but but certainly they have to fight with the bigness thing as well. I mean everyone does. You can't really avoid it. And there's identity too. Certainly, look at China. There's the Uyghurs. I think I pronounced that right. And the, and yeah, the people yeah, of the, Tibet, the, the, the Chinese uh, Muslims in, in the yeah. Western, in, in what's sometimes called Chinese Chinese uh, Turkestan. Well, people want their their identification. Vermont. When you think of Vermont, there's a clear identification. There's an identity. And uh, one of the things that that I have spoken with people from the League of the South, they had very different. Uh, uh, values for me, quite frankly, being a, a New England guy here. But we could agree that, hey, as Bob Dylan said, most likely you go your way, I'll go mine, you know? Right. And we don't want to impose it on each other. But why should my values uh, be imposed on, on the South? I spoke with a, uh, uh, on this show, I did an interview with a, a 15-year-old in Alabama who did an amazing production, a video of, of the real war in Iraq, she was a war opponent, and I, I asked her, and I was surprised by the answer to my question. I said, well, why don't Democrats make any gains there in the South? You know, because she was clearly opposed to the war in Iraq. She said, well, abortion and gay rights. They have different values there. They were defeated yeah. militarily, but they have never accepted Northern values. Why should they have to accept our values? Why should my values be imposed on them? Or, or they, 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 the people down south now who you know are, are favoring uh, the League of the South and others, they don't want to impose their values on me. They, they say, well, if you guys want gay marriage up there, go right ahead. Yeah, yeah. I hear that. I mean, as I said earlier, I'm a little, I get a little concerned when the discussion really tends to focus more on the cultural uh -huh. and ethnic parts, let's say, as an exclusion to others, because then, you know, you get closer to the kind of balkanization model, you know, of, of a former Yugoslavia, and, and things can get, you know, pretty pretty dicey. So that part of the discussion is, is, is one that I think uh, a lot of care has to be, you know, given to. And I think the process is important here. You know, if, if small government people uh, really believe in, in democracy, and I think they do, then they have to be democratic about the way in which this might be done. In other words, it has to be a democratic discussion, you know, how we're going to devolve uh, if that's the way we go. It's not something to be done with guns. It's not something, yeah. you know, to be, it's not, it's not a movement that should be led by, by hotheads, but by, um, by civilized people who have respect for the democratic tradition with a small d. Well, that's one thing that, that uh, a logical question is, okay, we have this uh, dinosaur here that, that's just stumbling and, and is yep. probably... dinosaur is the word. It, it's really unsustainable, clearly. Okay, well, what do we do? How do we get from mammoth, which you notice became extinct, and dinosaurs did too, from mammoth centralized to small, devolved, decentralized? How do we do it? I mean, I... I 
nobody wants to resolve, resort to violence. It didn't work. No, anymore. I mean, you know, you're beginning to see in some states, like, you know, state sovereignty, you know, resolutions, things like that. Um, I think at this point, we're very much at the discussion stage. And uh, in terms of what's next, it could mean, you know, so there might be a move. I could imagine a movement for, for, let's say, a new constitutional compact. I mean, something like that. Uh, but it would have to arise organically. I mean, it would have to be enough of a critical mass of people in each state, in each, you know, these ma- major metropolitan areas for it to happen. And it's, you know, it's going to be a difficult thing. But, you know, it, that, that's how it will happen. It will happen through discussion. It will happen because the media is focused on it. It will happen because people are writing more books and articles and because, you know, people like you and I are discussing it. And, uh, you know, the sort of the word gets out. And, you know, at some point, I guess people decide that they're tired and they're maybe not feeling so helpless anymore and they decide to do something about it. I mean, you know, most things happen because, uh, you know, a political will, really, on the behalf of the people. Look what's happening in Iran right now. I mean, it might be another revolution for all we know. Absolutely amazing. Very, very inspiring. And I I do worry about, uh, frankly, the traditional left. And uh, the the word socialism has come up a lot. The, The right at the Tea Party, seems to be very, uh, very afraid of the continuing centralization of power, the propping up bigness using our tax dollars for decisions to help certain certain companies that uh, it's out of our choice. And the left is, I think some of the more traditional left is sort of welcoming the word socialism and saying, hey, let's be socialist. Let's talk about socialism. Yeah. But they're a different kind of socialism. It seems to me... And now's not the time for that. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, on. no, I mean, I, you know, I, I look. I'm a, you know, I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. I'm not. I'm not a movement guy, basically left, right, or whatever. But, but um, my advice to the the left is just to study history yeah. uh, and 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 to think about the different possibilities here. That left does not have to mean bigness. It does not have to mean a planned economy. Uh, you know, if, we, if we're going to have broadband, for example, in this country, think of something like that, which and for everyone, you know, which is a good left issue, right? Not right. just for the wealthy people or even the upper middle class, but Access. for everyone, because we want to empower people who live in the inner cities and in places where there's not a lot of, of uh, a lot of employment and so forth. We want to get those people connected, right? Yes. Well, who's, how is that going to get done? I mean, is that going to be best done through some kind of a federal government program and mandate, or is it going to be better handled, you know, regionally? You know, issues like that. I think this talk goes over actually rather well in the Bay Area in San Francisco, where there is that more, there's more of a tradition of kind of left-oriented uh, local activism. Ah, interesting. Bert Cohen here on Portside. We're talking with author Paul Staraban about After America and his article in the Wall Street Journal, Divided We Stand. What kind of uh, reaction have you gotten from that? Anything surprising or, or somewhat predictable reactions from that article? You know, a lot of comments on the article itself in the journal, the Wall Street Journal. Some people kind of accusing me of selling out, you know, Sell America. Out. But but oh. uh, I would say most of the comments uh, focus on the practical side of things. You know, in, in other words, yeah, you're basically right, we're too big, but how do we get smaller, right. and, you know, and how can that be done without, you know, blood and tears? And I, I, I think that's absolutely the right, you know, way to focus the discussion. I mean, I think the devil is in the details, and, and uh, I'm, I don't have a master plan here. I, I you know, I, I'm putting it into the water, and I'm thinking myself about how it might be done. You know, do we need an internal revenue service? Well, I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, if you had these different regions, maybe they would contribute, you know, money to a federal kitty that would support things like, you know, national 
defense. I mean, that's you know, you th- think about it in sort of pieces. You know, which piece is sure. best done at what level, whether it's national security or whether it's education. You know, things like that. Yeah, and how do we finance it? You know, taxes is always a, is an essential issue. Well, we want our tax dollars staying here. People always look uh, to you know how much does each state send <clears throat> to Washington versus how much it gets back, and you know what about keeping the money here? There's the energy crisis too, which you know the price of oil keeps going up. We're totally dependent on on foreign oil, and there's talk about these big mammoth dinosaurs called nuclear power. Well, maybe some places choose to do nuclear power. Other places don't. And have, you know, you can develop power solutions. Like here along the coast, you can have wave power and various different windmills out to sea, things like that. But there's the idea of, is there a, a, a centralized solution to power? Do we have one big power grid, one big generator of electricity? Or is it decentralized, smaller decentralized units. And it yep. seems to me the the economic aspects alone are trending very clearly. Excuse me. Trending well, very clearly. Water there. Yeah. Toward, yep. uh, no, I can help you out there. I think the energy thing is a good one. We hadn't focused on that. You know, a lot of the trend in energy, again, not an energy expert, but, you know, I read about these things. Uh, for example, solar power. I mean, you know, the Dep- even the Department of Energy has been talking about a future where, you know, people can have their own, you know, solar power generator packs as they travel around. Now, that may be oh. rather science fiction, but you can certainly imagine, you know, local power grids, whether it's solar, wind, or anything sure. else. Uh, and, you know, do we need to do that? Nuclear power, interesting issue. You know, the Wall Street Journal had a piece uh, yesterday. This is not anything I wrote on the news page. You know, the government has selected, I believe it's four companies that are going to start building new nuclear power plants again. Uh, you know, the government has selected. I mean, is that a good idea or not? I mean, let's have people debate the future of energy. And that's our tax dollars at work there. If it, no, we're that's not our tax do- Well, we're going to be doing loan guarantees. Thank you. You reminded me of the article. The article was about how the federal government is going to do loan guarantees for these companies. They're going to be building nuclear power plants, which are very, very difficult things you know, to build for all kinds of reasons, obviously, oh, yeah. political, you know, legal, regulatory but, you know, I, and I understand the spirit of this. We don't want to be feeding off of hydrocarbons forever, so nuclear, right. you know, might be an option to talk about. I mean, I understand that. But there are other options as well. And, you know, what do people on the left, what do people on the right, what do any people uh, think, you know, ought to be done as far as management of energy is concerned? Can it be done locally? And I believe it probably can be done locally even better. You know, that, uh, that we can take a look at what we have. I mean, California has a great deal of sun. And uh, yeah. we have, you know, Iowa, places like that have a great deal of, of wind power. Yeah. So perhaps yeah. there... But there'd have to be some sharing, too. Oh, I mean, yes. This is, you know, this, this is where the discussion... The point. You know, this is the sophisticated yes. discussion, or it should be, because, you know, the idea of devolution is not that everybody basically you know, some kind of autarky where everyone is fending only for themselves. Right. I like, you know, sharing is a, is a good idea in general, right? Absolutely. So, you know, we might have these different regions specializing in what they do best, right. but, you know, they should also be kind of sharing things because, hey, if Texas has all this wind energy, for example, which is starting to develop, it might want to share that, you know, with other parts of the country that aren't getting so much wind. Sure, we like to, to share things for sure. I mean, I like to eat, uh, you know, bananas and strawberries. It may not be the most economically and environmentally sound getting it from point A to point B. But if, you know, say Central America grows bananas, 
let's help their economy by by buying you know bananas and perhaps yeah. find, we're yeah. not going to grow yeah, here in New England. That would be the ideal way that it would work. That it's it's smaller scale, but there's lots of sharing. And you know, some people will probably say that's sort of utopian, but you know, you have to kind of step back and just say, well, where are we now? Well, where are we now? We do seem to be faltering rather badly. And uh, a lot of people are concerned, not just on the right, but the left, too, about this uh, centralization. You know, and I wonder about uh, historic inevitability. It's, it's kind of a, an odd phrase, historic inevitability. But you look at places like Northern Ireland. You look at places like Palestine. They are going to happen. You know, they, they, these uh, autonomous, semi-autonomous, I'm thinking probably more semi-autonomous, like Scotland will probably be still part of the UK. I know the French Empire like to have uh, Algerian places like that within uh, a greater France. It didn't quite work out that way. <laughs> no, that was, a colo- <laughs> that was colonialism. Well, it was colonialism, for sure, and, and that, that never works. Uh, Britain, Britain and India. Oh, Britain and yeah, India. Yeah, it works for a time, but it's such an exploitative relationship oh. that it can never work forever. Yes, as uh, Rocky famously said to Bullwinkle, that trick never works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And yeah, Hawaii. I mean, we're not as bad as that. I wouldn't say Washington is like no. the mass, you know, we're living in a slave economy. But, not at but, all. Uh, you know, it, but we do have this system of, of, it's imperial in the sense that it's so large and yes. it's kind of command and control, and it just seems to be getting you know, more in that direction, not not less. I think that's the, yeah. you know, the kick in here and, and why this article, for example, is, is getting some attention is that people are are seeing some of this, you know, kind of even as we speak and they're scratching their heads and they're wondering where it goes and who's going to pay all the bills, right? We, federal debt, that mountain of federal debt, you know, we're going to have to sell all these bonds and it's going to burden the citizenry. Would we have to have that level of debt, perhaps, if 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 taxes, you know, were done in a different way, and you know, and the and the, the tax people were more accountable, uh, or the people who tax were more accountable to the people who pay the taxes? What a concept, <laughs> accountability, yeah, and government serving the, the local people. I know it's a complex issue, the idea of semi-autonomy within some sort of a. Uh, confederation, something like that. What do you, we have just a couple minutes left. What do you sure. think is next? How how will devolution continue from here? What do you expect to see? Of course, there's always surprises. Yeah, I expect to see uh, uh, Washington in denial about it. <laughs> uh, you know, yes. that's no surprise. Yeah. Uh, I, I expect the interesting things to be coming out of the uh, states and localities. You know, it's the places like the Cali Baja or, or Texas. Texas is a good place to watch right now. Texas is feeling, you know, kind of pissed off about uh, a whole lot of things, including taxes, but not only taxes. And, uh, you know, you have polls now uh, suggesting that it, over a third of Texans think that Texas would work better as an independent nation, you know, wow. as part of America. That, that, that to me is like, wow, over a third of the people. Uh, so uh, I'd be watching for those kinds of uh, impulses. Uh, and, you know, as a journalist, those are the kinds of things I, I will watch for. Maybe there are some other things happening uh, other parts of the country. And I wouldn't just be paying attention to kind of the more the fringe where it's just no, kind no. of an ethnic or a tribal thing. Right. I would be looking for, for kind of bigger, you know, I, I want to look look at it through a, a kind of a wider lens than that. Well, I wonder how can California ever get out of this mess they're in? I have, <laughs> I have no idea what they can do. I mean, it's just too big. It's, they're going to just have to either stumble through and they'll be, you know, just, just this permanent bleed, slow bleed or not, or they're going to have to make some radical changes 
it's very difficult what they're struggling with because uh, there are there are some enormous constraints just on their ability to enact change in terms of you know super majorities that have to vote them in, and so you have Californians you know sort of just just disagreeing on such fundamental equations, which is one reason why possibly if California were divided up, it would be easier at least for these regions to attain agreement uh, amongst themselves and possibly more economic stability. What a country! Possibly, yeah. You know, I mean, uh, I think California is a great example because it's so. You know, there's a lot of ingenuity out there. I mean, in many ways, it's the most, you know, successful American experiment of them all. But but it's also screwed up. (laughs) It's gotten awfully, awfully big. Well, Paul Sterabin, thank you so much. How can people uh, check out your other work on the uh, on the web? Uh, www.afteramericabook.com. Uh-huh. Uh, that will lead you to the book and to some other things. Uh, and just a Google of my name, uh, either attached to the National Journal or Atlantic Monthly Magazine, will get you there. Uh, the Wall Street Journal piece will show up if you just uh, Google Paul Sterabin uh, Wall Street Journal. Uh, I believe it's it's open to anybody. You don't have to be a subscriber to the Wall Street Journal. It's also been picked up elsewhere on the web. Uh, so, hey, you know... <laughs> Small is beautiful. You're you're personally empowered. If you want to, you know, check me out or check this issue out, uh, you know, you're basically a click of the mouse away. Interesting. Small is beautiful. That that came out in the '70s, I think, and here it is, back yeah, stronger than a, ever. It's a phrase, but you know, so maybe there's something to it. Oh, I think so. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Very stimulating discussion. Yeah, no, I appreciate you having me on, and uh, I hope it was enjoyable for your listeners as well. Oh, absolutely. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, and we'll see what happens in America's future. And I don't know a soul who's not been battered. I don't have a friend who feels at ease. I don't know a dream that's not been shattered or driven to its knees. Ah, but it's all right. It's all right, for we've lived so well so long. Still, when I think of the road we're traveling on, I wonder what's gone wrong. I can't help but wonder what's gone wrong.